Emerita Professor Jan Jordan is best known as a criminology academic and victim rights campaigner with a long career at Victoria University of Wellington and many academic books, particularly looking at rape culture and justice. But until now, Jan Jordan has not spoken publicly about her own survival story. Her new memoir, Snorkeling in the Abyss, reveals a deeply personal story of psychic pain, self-harm by cutting and suicide attempts as a young woman. It's an extraordinary account of surviving and overcoming adversity. It's also lived experience of numerous institutional abuses, from within the mental health system to fundamentalist churches, and of sexual assault. And it is a story of intergenerational trauma, not of physical violence, but the emotional suffering from the legacies of war, societal role expectations, and unresolved grief. Emerita Professor Jan Jordan is in the Wellington studio with me. Good morning. Thanks for coming in. Good morning, Catherine. You began writing this book several years ago, possibly two decades ago. <laughs> yes. Uh, but publishing something so profoundly personal, sharing it with the world, is quite something else. And why do that? And why now? I did it because I had to, Catherine. I felt as though a lot of my career I'd spent encouraging other women to tell their stories, enabling victim survivors to share their experiences. And I began feeling more and more, even hypocritical almost, that I was keeping so much of my own world separate. And for me, I became more and more conscious, as I, and it's right, two decades ago I started writing this memoir, I began more and more conscious of how I needed to link what I call the two hemispheres within me together. I had the child who was named Janet Robinson, whom I began life as, and who was the one who went through all the things that you just mentioned and the cutting and the desperation. And then I'd become the academic and very few people knew anything about my past life. And a lot of that was because I concealed it. I kept it hidden. I felt ashamed about it. I thought I'd be judged. I thought people might not believe the thing, think that I had credibility as an academic if I came out showing a past that was so angst-ridden, um, where I was so desperate, where I did end up, you know, threatened with confinement in psychiatric institutions. Um, would I be written off as mad? So I had to kind of overcome my own fear about how I'd be seen and judged. And I had to, I guess, overcome the shame within myself. So it's a very personal story. And for me, writing it was about trying to join Janet Robinson and Jan Jordan together and claim my space as one integrated person. Yes, I was broken in the past and I am who I am now and they are one person and I need to accept that, be proud of that and own that in the world. So while you were such a, a renowned criminologist, I, I mentioned to you, I think, 25 years ago as a newsroom reporter, we would go to Jan Jordan when we had it, needed to comment on crime. Uh, and, uh, and, and so then were you, st had you reconciled those two hemispheres then? Or has the long process of the memoir been part of doing that? The long process of the memoir has been doing that. I was still feeling almost like two separate people at the time that you mentioned. So when I started out teaching in, at Victoria, um, you know, I was um, the only woman for quite some years teaching in criminology. And um, I was desperate to actually, you know, look sane, together, 
credible, you know, build a voice of authority, look like I could own the space in the lecture theatre. You know, no one knew how terrified I was inside or the anxieties or, or any, you know, occasionally they came out, occasionally they sort of crippled me momentarily. But mostly I was trying just to keep, not a fiction alive, but just to keep that part of myself separate and hidden. The process of writing, this book has gone through many, many different iterations. And it's even gone through quite a few since Mary McCallum from Cuba Press picked it up because um, it's evolving. Like even, even at 2.30 a.m. this morning when I was not sleeping, I was working out in my head what, more about what the title meant for me, Snorkeling the Abyss. You know, and I suddenly thought, of course, snorkeling is the thing that I really have come to. Like, I had lots of body shame and huge body shame, like not just shame, hatred, body hatred. Um, And I'm still getting, you know, actually, I'm still, you know, I still live with that. Lots of women do. Um, But mine was crippling to the point where, you know, I was crawling under windows at one stage. I didn't want to be seen. So people couldn't see you. Mm. Yeah, I... Yeah, um, getting on a bus was a total nightmare. I would have panic attacks almost, just the shame of what if the bus moved and jolted and I got tossed off my feet and my skirt went over my head and, you know, I'd like visibility. Mm. Yep, it was extreme. Um, So for me, like the one thing that I found as an adult that I love being doing in my body is snorkeling, being in, in the water, being in the present, focused on a different world. The abyss was the old world, which for me was the mental torment. It was the abyss of self-loathing. It was that pit that I constantly felt I was falling down or endeavouring not to fall down any further. It was where I felt suicidal. It was where I felt totally alone. And the big thing was feeling disconnected, Mm -hmm. disconnected from everybody. And so snorkelling the abyss is bringing those two together. And I just realised that title says it all. And I'm so thankful that, you know, with, with Mary, we got to that title um, because it's had many titles and many iterations. So it's evolving. You've used that word um, sane, insanity and mad. Now, one thing I never felt in the entire time reading this beautifully written 326-page book <laughs> was that you were insane or that there was a, a mental health issue um, of, of that ilk. What this book screams, and I've used the word in almost all our promotional material, is psychic pain, which to me is the pain of existing. And we all have moments of it, but you were completely immersed in it. And can we we go back? Uh, You talk about disconnection. Um, In your childhood, only childhood in the 1950s home, everyone, mother, father, somewhat tyrannical grandmother... (laughs) Everyone was carrying unresolved grief and pain. And and this is a case study in how critical those early years are to Mm -hmm. one's formation of self and self-worth. And these were the years where you formed that internal voice. We all have one. We have multiple. But you had one you call the snake. And it was to taunt you for so long. Can you describe first the unresolved traumas of that household? Why you could not connect, why they could not connect in the way a child needed? Yeah, um, my my mother 
had made a promise um, to her brother before he went off to the Second World War that if anything happened to him, she would look after their mother. Um, now, there'd been three boys in the family um, and her, but, of course, she was the only girl. She was the youngest. Um, Jack went off to war. He never came back. So my mother felt she had to, um, you know, look after Nana. And Nana was Nana had had a really hard life herself. Um, and she had lost her husband to the Depression. She'd nearly been bankrupted during um, the you know, that that era when he died and she was left with a business in, in Lower Queen Street. She, you know, she had, had her difficulties. She, I don't think, welcomed the fact that my mother had, was, was ma- married, um, married and then had a child. In a sense, she found it hard, and I think, to share my mum. And my mum found it really difficult to divide herself between all of us. So my mother actually had lots of you know, she she got she got very depressed after her first child was stillborn, um, and in fact, she wouldn't actually say it was stillborn to me. It was my father many years later. So there was even pretense around: mm-hmm. was the child stillborn, or my mum believed that it had been born with an overdose of pethidine in its body, and that the doctors, in, in some way, were responsible. And I don't know why that fiction. You know, I think I believe now it probably was a fiction. Why she why she clung to that, um, but they had they had the loss. They had the stillbirth. They had um, you know father dying early, son you know brother dying in the war. Um, my dad feeling emasculated by my nana. Nana um, owned the house, effectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she and ran she the ruled house. the house. Yeah, yeah. Nana ruled. Yeah, yeah. and and in that sort of space, um, my father kind of retreated like to his own world under the house or in the garden. My mother retreated a lot into her own head. Yeah, Mm. so she became really, really depressed. And Nana just stomped up and down the ramp to her room with her walking stick. And so as a child growing up, I was aware of these three individuals and I was desperate to reach them. Like, I don't remember ever sitting on, like, Nana's knee having a book read, but I don't remember actually ever being hugged at all. Um... So there was no physical touch or affirmation. What I do remember is that the only time anyone really smiled much was, well, they smiled when they looked at nature, which was where I get my love of nature from. But it was when I did well. If I did well at school, they seemed pleased with me and I got, you know, I got some attention. This is a thing called unconditional love, which has to not only exist, but the child has to receive it. Now I can tell how much your mother loved you reading this mm. book. She would go out of her way and, and she would rally at times and do fun yeah. things with you. And again, I can look at every person in this house yeah. this little girl's growing up in and feel their pain. Yeah. Um, and your father had his own negative voice which ran his entire mm. life. But the, the thing is this child needs needs something that, yeah. that just didn't come. And that snake, that voice then was to stay with you a long time. It was essentially, I'm not good enough. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Was that is that oversimplifying? No, no, it's not. It's it's what I would probably term the inner critic, which is in my case was incredibly harsh. And yes, I mean, it, it was like my father's voice at times. You know, I mean, he'd knock something over and immediately it would be like, oh, clumsy clot, you know, and I'd spill something and it would be, oh, you mucky pup, you know. And there was that mm. internalising often of, 
um, you know, like the critic, which meant that every slight imperfection that I saw in myself or everything I did wrong, I was incredibly harsh and censorious of myself. Um, And I found it really difficult to um, accept that I could make mistakes and still be loved. Rejection, which was to become such a major issue. Rejection is part of life, but for you it would become life-threatening. Rejection was life-threatening. So there's the awkwardness of your body, the awkwardness that you felt in your body, um, and you were not a sporty child. You felt almost betrayed by your body. Very bright, but still there were all those things that happened at anyone's schooling that would yeah. impact you as well. Let's just come forward a little bit to your teens where we're really starting to get into, um, you know, the, the impacts of this becoming crippling and becoming borne out in a really unhealthy way for you. Um, you began challenging your father as teens do. Your experience of your of your mother was withdrawal from the world. Um when would you say this started to become a crisis? Was it that transition to university, perhaps, which can be such a vulnerable time for so many people? When did this go to become a real crisis for you? I think it began building from when I was about 14, to be honest. And that was the first time that I started feeling quite suicidal. And um, luckily, I didn't know much about, you know, I read the warning on the packet that said, you know, do not exceed the stated dose and thought six pills would do it in those days. Um, so, but that was a period where um, I began really feeling like um, the world would be better off without me and I would be better off without the world. And it just began, it sort of kept intensifying. So by the time I got, when I got to university, I actually began there feeling a bit more buoyant in a way because I thought, you know, whole new place. 70s campers, yeah. Tim, Shad, Bullshit and Jelly Beans, <laughs> protests. There's yeah. this, and this is yeah. what can happen at this stage of life. There's yeah. all this possibility, but yeah, there's a vulnerability too. There, there is. And... I mean, I was really excited about doing English literature at, at university and um, because I'd loved it at school. And it just seemed full of big egos and, um, you know, people who were sort of on self-promotion trips. And I, and I found, I don't know, I just felt if I'm going to do English literature here, it's going to kill my love of reading. Um, and, you know, so I started doing philosophy and that was probably a bad choice for me because I got obsessed then with finding, trying to find the meaning of life and thinking, um, if only I can find that. But mostly I think, like, going there, I realised, um, yes, there were things I could get involved with and I did. I got involved with various protests and various activities and, you know, voluntary stuff and, and everything. So that was all good. But inside me, I was still feeling that... Um, that sort of that despair and that sense that I wasn't good enough, and I think that's the thing that I really had to, um, you know, really had to sort of almost go to the depths of feeling like, you know, there has to be only one way, and that's got to be up from here because I just went down and down. Mm. Um, when you know, did the cutting begin? First time I tried to cut was probably as a teenage girl with a nail file, thinking, will this do it? And then it just sort of progressed from there. Mm. And in my case, it um, it almost became a bit addictive because it was a way to release pain. And the cutting was also, like, it's a funny thing, but the cutting releases endorphins, which gives you a temporary high. And so... 
ironically, I'd be absolutely despairing and I'd cut and then I'd feel quite good. So by the time I got to A&E and got stitched, because often I did quite big cuts and then and I needed lots of stitching, um, I'd get there and I'd be in a different headspace. And of course, the you know, A&E couldn't staff couldn't make sense of it. Mm. Um, and I think now, hopefully, there's a lot more there's understanding lot more about that. But back then, it, there was no understanding. This was to become a go-to when you were even even after many years, you would still be you'd be tempted to resort to this yep. for relief. And, um, and and the suicide attempts, as we said, there'd be um, there'd be attempts as as well over time. Um, and as we said, any rejection would see you spiral very often, quite quickly into self harm. Was this again because of a particular inner voice, a particular negativity? Yes, um, I think it was. It was that inner voice. Um, it could be rejection. It could be just not trusting acceptance as well. Uh-huh. So the rejection didn't have to be okay, overt. That's really important because yeah. there's a difference. There's a rejection, and we've had some where someone wasn't going to date anymore or something yeah. like that. The, the standard stuff. Yeah. Not accepting. Not trusting that others are accepting. Uh-huh. So. Um, not trusting the surface of how someone presents or what they say. Second guessing. So, yep. So the second guessing, and for me, with the um, like with the fundamentalist church, there are a lot of good people in that. But some of the experiences in that, I wasn't sure I could trust all the. You know, you can be born again. You know, you can. You know, you you can be have. You know, you can have the demon of depression cast out of you and be you know I couldn't trust um, yeah there was a, I found it difficult. Let's talk about that for a moment because this again happens at university and again it's a, it's a time of exploration and discovery mm. university and um, amidst the many things you were getting involved with was a um, Christian were Christian groups on campus ultimately with a fundamentalist Pentecostal church and, and you said it there were good people yep. in and around you at this time people you tick off as you know perhaps saving yeah. your life at various yeah. times but there was also the other stuff the the you know pray away your rebellion pray away your self-harm basically exorcisms and did they help or did they just harm no that they, they were harmful and i am so thankful the spirit of rebellion refused to be cast <laughs> out <laughs> because yeah. i think that you know i think that was one of my lifesavers in a way that I did have a stubborn tenacity beneath everything else and I did have um, a rebellion which is partly you know why I've done some of the work I've done um, is that you know so um, no those those rituals were incredibly um, were incredibly frightening and incredibly um, just kind of confirmed in a way to me that I must be really bad and really toxic on the inside. And when the demons wouldn't leave, it felt like um, I was beyond redemption. I was beyond salvation. Um, and so that that actually just added to, you know, I mean, the snake was was incredibly delighted at that point. There were sexual assaults, the entitlement that one person just asserts over another mm-hmm. without recourse and without consequence all too often. And at the time... How did you cope with what happened to you on more than one occasion, actually? It depended. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I write just about some of the assaults in the, in, in the book because I think any any girl or woman growing up really in a 
you know, in a society with our, our history is often vulnerable to these. For me, I think the coping... I mean, one way I coped a lot was by writing things down. And that's why I could put this book together with a lot of journal entries, because um, I wrote a lot. Um, when I couldn't speak to other people, I would write um, just, just for me. And so that was one way of coping. Um, as I became older, like by um, like when I wanted to, I guess, process some of those things, later um, psychotherapy played a really important role. Um, and some of that was important in understanding the impacts of my family. But I saw those things as kind of connected in a way because growing up without a sense of um, self-love or self-worth meant that, um, of course, I was vulnerable often in terms of those, um, like the therapist who set up the sexual relationship, um, I was vulnerable to that. You know, I was desperate to be, um, I was desperate for hugs sometimes, you know. The fact that they would, you know, could groom through hugging made me an absolute sucker. You reveal many things about institutional abuse, including the instance of professionals or therapists within the mental health system saying and doing inappropriate things. In the instance you're referring to, becoming involved sexually with you, which you write in the memoir, you, you now regard as rape. Because of the power imbalance, and it took me a long time to see that. In fact, I was, I was doing research with women who'd been raped, and there was one woman who talked to me about her having been um, groomed and sexually assaulted by her therapist. And I can remember we had long talks, um, not just interviews, but long long talks. And at one stage, um, I said to her, I haven't been any th through anything like that, but I can empathise a little bit because this happened. And she just sort of looked at me and she said, that's exactly what I've just described to you. And you told me I'd been raped. And I kind of went, ooh, um, and I really had to think about that. And I'd been saying it to her because there'd been such a violation of that relationship of trust and dependency that had developed. And that there'd been such a violation of, um, I guess, the boundary that it's up to the therapist who's got the power in that relationship to uphold and put in place. And so when I suddenly had to realise that... Um, you know, this this had happened to me as well, and it was a shock. It took me a long time to realise. What was your experience of the mental health system at this time when you were harming and obviously needing help? At the time, there was very little understanding, I think, about um, about cutting and also about the different ways. In fact, I wrote an essay at university on the difference between suicide attempted suicide and self-mutilation because I felt like everything got collapsed into um, you must have borderline personality disorder, you must be mentally um, insane. And there was a sense of um, not understanding all the different things that were going on. Like for me, sometimes I'd overdose just to go into oblivion and just to actually have time out from the pain. I couldn't stand the mental torment any longer. And it wasn't necessary that I wanted to die. There were a couple of overdose attempts, though, where I really did want to die. And um, in some ways, you know, some people saw it as miraculous on at least one occasion that, that I didn't. Um, so I think there was a, a real ignorance around um, what 
what a young person in that situation is trying to achieve and why they feel so desperate and why they use these things as different strategies to manage the pain and the torment they're feeling. And I'm hoping that now there's a lot more understanding about that. But rather like the fundamentalist church, I also see in what you write about the mental health system at that time a real structural power problem, Mm. even though they're there to help. Half past 10 it is, 29 minutes to 11 it is. Jan Jordan on her memoir, Snorkeling in the Abyss. You're listening to Nine to Noon with Catherine Ryan on RNZ National. Forgive me skirting ahead a little. International travel seemed to be important. It presented new possibilities for you, even in this time of suffering in your 20s. There'd be ups and downs, there'd be reverting Mm. to cutting, etc. But it seems to be an important time. And also you'd always, as you've alluded to, had a social conscience. You volunteered for various causes. You were interested in criminology, the source of criminal behaviour. Uh, and how society regards it for a long time. This seems to be the beginning of a turning point when you moved to Christchurch after international travel. You've been offered accommodation there. And was this where your interest in and your capability for study was to begin to take hold and constructively? It's where I felt I joined a sociology department at Canterbury University where I felt sort of held in a way by a department that was very, um, the staff were very connected with each other and with the postgrad students and very politically active. Um, during the Springbok tour, the place department pretty much closed down every, every time there was a protest. It felt like a place that I started to belong. Um, and in terms of the accommodation, I was staying with, um, with Christians who, um, who are fundamentalist Christians. They were... The ones, though, who are very, um, they accepted me in a way that meant they were not trying to impose that belief system on me the whole time. And they were, um, so I had I had the support, if you like, around me on both, both levels. But I'd say that my love of study had actually begun earlier, but it had been derailed. You were a great student. But, I'd love but, study. But, 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 but you, the, and I'm, I can't remember in the memoir why those grades, I don't know whether it was just connected to what was happening, but you got to the point where I think you were, weren't going to be able to go back to Auckland Uni. I got excluded for failure to make satisfactory academic okay. progress. So there's no doubt, yeah. going back to high school, that that ability and skill yeah. and talent um, was there. But at Canterbury, it was A pluses, and, 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 and it, was, it was beginning to become... What? It began being the A pluses. The first, like when I got back from overseas at Auckland, my last year at Auckland, that was, you know, which which I'm quite pleased about in a way because Auckland excluded me, and then I came back. And the first year I came back, I got the prizes in sociology and I got the A pluses. But in a sense, I couldn't trust. Like that part of me that couldn't trust. I thought, am I getting these just because the lect- the couple of the lecturers here know that? I was suicidal and got excluded. And are they giving me compassionate grades to make sure I don't top myself? So that was why what prompted a move south in a way was to say, let's go somewhere where nobody knows me and see if I can still do okay. You alluded to earlier that it was hard. But once you got to Vic, which was not too long um, after the, the sociology study um, and the opportunities opened up there in 33 years, you were to stay there and go all the way through to professor, right? I'm sure it wasn't as straightforward as that. <laughs> but um, but you, you mentioned it was tough, but it was the, the building blocks yep. of a sense of self and a sense of self-worth um, happened. You've also been in a long relationship, three decades now. Yes. I think um, officially married last year. But, yes. But, um, 
but you know what was it over time that enabled you to move from the self-loathing and the lack of self-worth and this constant expectation or second guessing of rejection to being capable of receiving love to being capable of a long stable relationship I think there's lots of things I think there's realising how many people kept wanting to connect with me and support me and realising like I was lucky in that I had lots of people who stood by me and I gradually came to believe some of the things they were saying and the fact that they did care um, and I'd, I'd really say that for anybody who's trying to support someone who's in a really negative and self-harming or suicidal space, um, even when if they feel rejected by that person, hang in there and keep supporting them because I think that was really important. So connection around me was important. The psychotherapy I mentioned was really important because it helped me to see what, why I found love difficult to trust and hard to accept. And it helped me to understand a lot more about that inner critic. And one of the big turning points for me was realising one day that the negative feelings of the abyss and the snake and all of that, they were, um, I could actually change my thinking and change my feeling. Like, I was not at their beck and call. I could I could actually take some charge and authority over them. It's not easy. And it no. takes a long time. And yeah. you have to keep keep dealing with the same triggers. Yep. But understanding yep. why you were the way you yep. were, and we all are the way we yep. are, understanding that gave you the ability to bring yep. some tools to it. I think it's really important. I think for all of us, and I think individually and as, as a society, that we really have to understand how the past and the legacies mm-hmm. of the past shape the present. And then within that, we also have to grasp that just because our present is shaped by our past, it doesn't determine our present. We can actually shape a new future. And those were critical learnings for me. It's quite the CV, long-serving member of the Institute of Criminology, 33 years at Victoria University, became a professor, first woman lecturer in the Institute of Criminology, Extensive research on police responses to sexual violence. You're a great researcher. You've been on the ground in so many different situations long before um, many others were. Multiple books. Um, one of the first, actually, on working girls in the New Zealand um, sex industry. And there's some delightful anecdotes. Thea Muldoon's one, particularly. <laughs> Don't worry, dear. I read it anyway. Very interesting. <laughs> Husband prevented her from reading your book. Absolutely. So, look, it's a heck of a, of a CV and, and the victims' rights advocacy um, in particular as well. And what I want to ask you is how much your own experience of suffering, of the failures and power structures in the system... How much a part of everything you've done and achieved academically um, and how much for a catalyst for your work with victims was that suffering? I would hate to think it was a precursor for anyone wanting to do this work, but did it inform it? I think it did, and I think a lot of it was, in hindsight, I realised how much that early life gave me... um, an understanding and an appreciation for what it meant to be othered, like the othering of others is something which, um, and the othering of victims is is something that I um, have, you know, feel really sort of strongly about. That othering is what creates difference and and division. I felt like 
the importance of enabling the voices of others to, to tell their stories was critical because that was going to help and hopefully overturn some of the worst travesties of the justice system to actually let women's real experiences of that system be told. And so I think I, think I felt an empathy with those who'd experienced stigma, which is probably why I related and could establish a rapport with, with the sex workers as well as with victims of, of rape and sexual assault. There was a sense, too, of um, an empathy and an ability to connect, and it wasn't conscious. As I said with that, you know, with the woman ab- abused by the therapist before, I didn't know sometimes why I could make a really good connection and rapport. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm. But it was there, it was the there. connection was there and the empathy. It's an extraordinary piece of writing among many other things. Oh, We've barely touched the surface of much of what happens in here, Jane. <laughs> Thank you very much. Jane Jordan, Snorkeling in the Abyss, her memoir published by the, the Cuba, Cuba Press. Press. Thank you.